tonight on Arena. Mary McGill and Chris Wasser with the pick of the Christmas TV and curator Nathan Mannion on the Irish Emigration Museum's exhibition on the Poles. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena and you can watch us on live stream. We're on rte.ie forward slash radio forward slash watch hyphen live. Christmas, the season of Michael Bublé, Brussels sprouts and the inevitable feast of television that can swing from delightful to dire. But fear not, our reviewers Chris Wasser and Mary McGill have donned their Santa hats and have carefully sifted through the festive TV schedule to bring us a selection of the biggest shows hitting our screens this Christmas. And they are not all from the streaming giants, I'm happy to say, as the festive season embraces the nostalgia of good old terrestrial TV. Remember that, children? Chris Wasser is with me in the studio. Mary McGill joins us from Galway. Uh, we're starting on Christmas Eve and a ghost story for Christmas. Lot number 249. Very, very um, pithy title, that one, Chris. It's on, it's on BBC Two. Ghost stories and Christmas, Christmas Carol, they go together. They really do. And the ghost story for Christmas or at Christmas on BBC, uh, it's a a traditional series Mm. at this stage. It was first launched in the 1970s, ran for about five or six years and then was revived and has been revived on and off since around 2005 with with some esteemed writers and and some comedy writers involved in the uh, the newer version. Mark Gaddis uh, writing and directing a few of them and he's back for this. Mm. They've taken an Arthur Conan Doyle story at lot number 249, which some kind of see as the original scary mummy story, uh, originally published in the 1880s. And it tells this very simple story of a student at Oxford uh, training to become a doctor. His name is Abercrombie Smith. Mm. He's also a bit of an athlete. He fancies himself as like, you know, this uh, perfect male model. And in this case, he's actually played by a bit of a perfect male model himself, uh, uh, a kid Harrington, who, you know, listeners will know from, from Game of Thrones. And he is disturbed one night by these experiments that are happening next door Mm. is Edward Bellingham he's another student who's into Egyptology and he's experimenting with a mummy and doing things that he really shouldn't be doing with sinister forces and Abercrombie Smith over the next few days kind of gets it into his head that this fella Edward is is basically bringing his mummy back and terrorising students at Oxford All right, and that's his Egyptian mummy that he's bringing. That he's, he's bringing, bringing his Egyptian. I should have made that clear. Yeah, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Just for clarity's purpose, uh, for, clari- for cl- purposes of clarification. Let's listen to a clip from uh, uh, Ghost for Christmas and we get a sense of just how upset Kit Harrington is. That's the Abercrombie Smith character. He's making a dramatic entrance to his friend's home, friend played by John Heffernan, after a disturbing encounter on the road. Let me in! Let me in! For pity's sake, let me in! Heavens, I'm coming, I'm coming. Scott, what's the matter? Brandy! Brandy! Get me Brandy! What has happened? White as cheek. May I stay? I, I must stay. I don't think I can face that road again except by daylight. Of course, of course. I'll have Mrs. Fernie make up the spare room. There! There! You see it? Some fellow? A fellow? I can scarcely see a thing out there. What of him? I am my own man again now. I was never so unmanned before. Because you're shaking like an aspen leaf. What the devil can have frightened you so? <laughs> I have been within the hand grip of the devil, that is certain. Sit. Sit, and I will tell you all the whole black business. It is monstrous and incredible, but it is true. It is all true. Oh, there you go. Kit Harrington as Abercrombie Smith and John Heffernan playing his pal. Uh, Mary McGill and Galway, were you shaking like an aspen leaf as you watched <laughs> this, Mary? 
You know what, Sean? I wasn't. I wasn't, but I was really enjoying it. It is, like, I mean, you can hear it there in the clip. It's a certain type of sensibility. It is yeah. a, a different type of costume drama, but it's a costume drama mm. nonetheless. And, and, and because of that, certain conventions are employed. They're certainly not for everyone. But I will say that the BBC has realised what a rich scene the ghost story continues to be, mm. um, even in contemporary times. Because, yes, you know, they've res- resurrected the, the tradition of the ghost story for Christmas. They've also had huge success in the last couple of years in the podcast realm with things like the, the Battersea Poltergeist and Uncanny which has become a kind of brand unto itself. Mm. So there is clearly even in this great you know modern age that we're in with all this technology and everything else there's still a massive appetite for this kind of storytelling and this is what the BBC does so well. I mean this is a simple recipe. You take a, a, a well-established story by a classic author you throw the best of writing and, and acting talent at it and you mix it together and you put it on at 10 o'clock on Christmas Eve and you make a lot of people very, very happy. So, you know, um, it is what it is. As I said, mm. a lot of people would hear that and be like, I'm, I'm not sure that's for me. But there are huge, uh, there is a huge appetite for this type of storytelling. And I, I mean, I really yeah. enjoy this. I actually think this is, a str- I think lot number 249 is the strongest one in recent years. All ah, right. And if, if, if Chris, I suppose we do get a sense we're very much in the Victorian era. Oh, yeah. we, can, we can hear the, <laughs> even the accents are, you know, of that time. If that's what this, I'm guessing that's what this spoke like yeah uh, absolutely yeah. back in the day but um, it's 30 minutes long mm-hmm. and, and we only played a minute and a half there in that clip there was a lot in that minute and a half did they pack a lot into the half hour I think they do yeah Mark <laughs> Addis who wrote and directed it he has described it as an overripe box of chocolates you know this typically full-blooded Victorian melodrama and that's it entirely uh, it is 32 minutes long that's one of the best <laughs> things about it um, and it's not trying it doesn't want to be taken seriously. It's supposed to be a little bit soapy. It's supposed to be quite old-fashioned. You won't hear anyone else, someone asking a stranger if they're shaking like an aspen leaf, you know? It's supposed to be silly. Um, but actually, in, in in being a little bit silly and being a little bit overripe, it does leave a bit of a, it does leave a bit of a mark. It did haunt me a little bit, you know, because I was, I found myself laughing at it as I went along. And then, I won't say what the final scene is, but when it finished, I thought, oh, I didn't like that. Mm. And that's the desired effect from it. So it's very well performed. I did get the sense that Everybody was doing it for the right reasons. And when I started looking into why Mark Gaddis wanted to work with these people, apparently he had said to them, I have a free week here. I have maybe about like three or four days. Though the actors involved, Freddie Fox, John Heffernan, Kid Harrington, they had a free four days. They were doing it for a laugh. And they said that when they were finished, they couldn't wait to sit down with mince pies and watch it on Christmas Day. So they're all doing it because they enjoy this sort of storytelling because they know that we don't get enough of it anymore. I think it works. Yeah, mince pies. And I'd say a little check as well at the end of the four days. <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay. What I'll say about it is it, it is a classic a time of year when people mm. want classic. This is classic storytelling and that is absolutely what you're going to get. But some, in, in recent times, particularly with Arthur Conan Doyle and writers of that period, uh, we often, the, the, the stories are reimagined or reassessed in terms mm. of gender, in terms of homoeroticism and masculinity. We heard him talking about being unmanned. He'd never <laughs> felt so unmanned previously. Uh, it was, I think was the Kit Harrington line. Um, it, d- does this go anywhere near any of those topics, Mary, or does it just tell us the story and get out? Oh, I think there's a certain nod towards homoerotic desire for sure. Um, but I let audiences make up their own minds. I think there's a reason we keep returning to these stories. And I, and that's mm. because they were forged at a time when the foundations of the society that we now know so well was was taking shape, right? You know, um, and those key ideas about what it is to be a man and what it is to be a woman and what desire is and, and all the rest of it. I mean, you look at something like Mary, you know, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein that people keep returning to um, where all of, you know, all, all kinds of interests ideas about modernity play out and I think that's why we keep returning to that okay. Victorian period because it is it has had such a profound effect in so many ways Alright you're both recommending this one highly yeah. from from, yeah. from what I'm picking up from the pair of you Christmas Eve 10pm and the, when the wits when you're shaking like an aspen leaf you go off to bed just in time for Santi to arrive you've got to be in <laughs> bed before midnight obviously so half past 10 you'll be able to head off to the Laba um, if you're watching that on BBC let us move on to Christmas Day uh, Christmas Day at 5 to 1 in fact uh, Peter and the Wolf 
on RTE1 created and developed by Gavin Friday with animation based on his pal uh, Bono's original artwork uh, maybe talk to us a bit initially Mary I remember this book when it came out um, Peter and the Wolf but Gavin Friday and Bono's um, artwork within it it was all in support of the Irish Hospice Foundation mm. and there was wonderful music from um, Morris Caesar and Gavin Friday as well at the time yeah, um, my experience with Peter and the Wolf goes back even further than that. I mean, I was I was amazed to hear that this collaboration between Gavin Friday and, and Bono and the Irish um, Hospice um, Society ha- is, is over 20 years old at this stage. Yeah. But I'm going to jump back as far as 1936 when Sergei Prokofiev um, created this classic that is Peter and the Wolf. And the whole idea was that it was like this um, kind of symphonic fairy tale, a way to introduce people, the simple story, mm. a way to introduce kids in particular to the very various um, elements of an orchestra. So we had the record, I think a lot of people did uh, growing up in the 80s and 90s. So we had this story of Peter and the Wolf and all the different characters were played by different instruments and it was very sweet and very wholesome. And I remember it so fondly to this day. And I think that's partly, this is a lovely, lovely piece of animation, Sean. And I think for adults as well who grew up with that, like many people did, it's going to really hit that, that sweet spot. But I have to say the level of talent on display here from Bono from Gavin Friday from the musicians mm. and everything else it really it's 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 a wonderful wonderful collaboration um I found myself sitting down and watching it you know very much in review reviewer yeah. mode and then realizing oh no this is actually this, we were talking about classics there this really has the potential to become a classic it's a oh, wonderful right. reimagining yeah yeah, yeah really you, nicely when done when you said you were going to jump right back to 1936 I thought for mm. a minute you were going to say when I first heard Prokofiev yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but when he composed it uh, Yes. You haven't been around for quite that length of time, no, I don't think, No, not Mary. quite that length. No, right. no. Yeah. Let's have a listen to a little bit of Peter and the Wolf. This is the opening section and it is Gavin Friday who is narrating. Beware, for wolves come in many disguises. Once upon a time, there was a boy called Peter. He lived with his grandfather in a cottage with a garden surrounded by a high stone wall. Outside the wall, there was a meadow with a pond and a tall tree. Beyond the meadow was a deep, dark forest. This is the story of Peter and the wolf who's always hungry. He's always hungry. It's the wolf. That's uh, the music of Morris Caesar and Gavin Friday. Uh, Gavin Friday himself narrating Peter and the Wolf. But this is an animated version that we're going mm. to see on the television. It was a book with wonderful pictures within it. What's the style of animation? There are all sorts of aspects to it, I think, Chris. Yeah, there's a lot going on in there. It's sort of a traditional sketchy 2D hand-drawn uh, uh, element. Uh, you know, the characters, mm. they, they start off uh, the opening scene is lovely where we actually have, you know, the, the real Bond uh, uh, drawing his famous uh, angular wolf on a pane of glass and the pane of glass then turns around and we kind of go straight into the world of Peter his grandfather and the wolf and everything kind of takes on this uh, uh, but there, it is it is hand drawn but there's there are also 3D sets underneath them I don't know how exactly they did it John <laughs> but but it is quite magical uh, to, to watch and also it's a wonderful animated film because it's one of you know an animated film is working really well when you can separate all the components and they all work by themselves but brilliantly yeah. uh, uh, isolated I mean if you were to take if you were to just listen to Gavin Friday's narration you're hooked it's it's a very good narration it's, just, it's not just relying on the animation to do a lot of the work that works by itself the animation if it was completely silent fabulous magical it just transports you it's very good at telling the story without any noise but then you throw in the score and also Morris Caesar's and Gavin Friday's work and it's just fantastic by itself put them all together and it's just delightful there are changes to the story I should uh, say let me let me ask Mary a little bit about that in fact Mary, mm. because uh, obviously it is as you pointed out it's a uh, the early 20th century is where this story comes from but it is a young boy with his granddad and and I think the way that Gavin Friday tells this story there it, it gives it a modern kind of twist or maybe a, a modern explanation 
It does. And I have to agree with Chris. I thought the narration was just spot on. I mean, it would work just as effectively mm. as, as, as a piece on the radio because the, the description um, is so excellent. And Gavin Friday doesn't, you know, he doesn't patronise, he doesn't make it saccharine. It's really moving and, and, and very, very effective. Um, so it's just, it's... <sighs> The story does change um, and there's a nice nod to grief and loss um, that's done uh, in, 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 again, avoiding this kind of saccharine um, mm. tone that you can find in a lot of, of Christmas material. Um, and But there is a mod- modern edge to it. And I, I love what they've done because they've managed to make Peter very much a modern boy, but they have kept the sensibility and the key lesson of the original story. So this is, I mean, everything about this, uh, just as... Uh, you know, as we're saying, is is really thoughtful. It's really creative, and it manages to kind of you know reach back in time to something that is deeply traditional. I certainly associate Peter and the Wolf with Christmas because of the setting and so on, but also reimagine it for a new audience. And I just was looking at the time when it's going out, you know, around lunchtime mm. on Christmas Day, and I was like, that is, it's just the perfect piece for people to sit down and take half an hour and just lose themselves into it. There's something for adults, there's something for children, and there's a lovely story that balances it all. I'm very proud for the purposes of full disclosure, five to one is nowhere near lunchtime in our oh, house on Christmas, me, <laughs> Christmas Day. <laughs> it's post-breakfast. Post-breakfast. <laughs> brunch. It's brunch. Anyway, um, it is, I suppose, it is lunchtime, five to one for lots of people, even on, on Christmas Day. And um, the, the music, it's a kind of a punky type of coffee that we get mm. here, isn't it? Yeah, Chris? it is. Mm. And I think it's nice that um, if you're a U2 fan, you'll be able to spot you know, this distinctive Irish, you'd be able to actually draw comparisons to, because Bono was so heavily involved, Bono's upbringing. You know, like Peter has kind of been redesigned as this teenage punk in the making. And there's a reason why he's living with his grandfather. And there's a little bit of ad- additional mm. uh, storytelling in terms of what where Peter's parents may be. And you're thinking to yourself, they're, they're, they're kind of like going back to Gavin Friday and Bono's childhood when they found each other and the kind of things that they wanted to do and the ideas that they had around that time. It is quite clever. And they did, they did go to... Um, Prokofiev's uh, family, his, yeah. his son, oh, his they grandson. Had to permission, didn't they, yeah, for the yeah, changes? yeah. But they ran everything by <clears> them, and they said that actually sounds lovely, and it is lovely. So you have this classic tale that ha- now has this distinctive Irish flavour. You can go and you know pick up the book, you can listen to CD, but now this is a wonderful companion piece to those. Mm. So I think it will brighten up countless living rooms across the country at, <laughs> at lunchtime on Christmas Day. <laughs> <laughs> One for all the family, Mary, is it? I think so. I find yeah. it a, a delight, absolute delight. All right, that's Peter and the Wolf. Five to one, that's nudge time in some people's houses on Christmas Day <laughs> on RTE One television. Let us move on to Based on a True Story, which eh, Mary McGill is based on a true story. Um, tell us the, the setup here. It's kind of a wild one, Sean. I'll be honest with you. Mm. Um, I did not know what to expect because one thing we're not short of at the moment is material about true crime podcasts. But this really spins the the, the whole idea on its head. Well, what's, what struck me first away with straight away with the opening credits was that um, executive producer Jason Bateman. Now, if people are familiar with Jason Bateman's work, he's he's done he's had tremendous success most recently with Ozark, which was on Netflix. But for me, his one of his standout performances was on Arrested Development this kind of, you know, cult comedy show from the US and it has a very distinctive absurdist sense of humour and that is totally imbued and based on the true story. So the setup, very loosely, is we have a very pregnant real estate agent called Ava, paid by Kaylee Cloco, who is not selling any real estate, Sean. Things are not going well for her. She has her husband, uh, Nathan, played by Chris Messina, who's a washed up tennis pro. Not Things aren't going great for him either. So they're not in a good spot. They're American dream is not materialising. Their friends are all doing very, very well financially. And Ava and Nathan are stuck. They need something that is going to pay the mortgage and allow them to become successful. And what in this brand new world that we live in um, allows people to capture that American dream as never before is stumbling upon or creating upon or finding, you know, the perfect story mm. to turn into a true, true crime, crime podcast. podcast. <laughs> 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 All right. Yes. Now let's have a listen to a clip with Eva Kaylee Cuckoo, as you say. Uh, and her husband, Nathan, played by Chris Messina, has been on the Google machine. And uh, Eva is none too happy about that. You're looking at my laptop? Who is she and what the hell is going on? That is the 
craziest story you won't believe. Try me. Okay, well, I'm out with Matt last night at mm -hmm. the bar. I go to get drinks, and boom, that girl comes out of the bathroom. She bumps into me. I mean, full-on hip-checks me. I say sorry. She says sorry. I don't think anything of it. She takes off gone. This morning, I check out the news. I find out she was murdered last night. So this girl was with you at the bar last night before she was killed? No, no. She wasn't with me. She bumped into me, and now she's dead. It's unbelievable. Okay, so you... Then you Googled her because she was murdered. Yeah, I mean... It's weird. It just... Freaked me out. Really? I mean, maybe, maybe he was at the bar last night. Maybe you even saw him. Did anyone look suspicious? There was one guy she was with. Looked like a date. Okay, no, that's that. That wouldn't be him. How do you know? No serial killer is going to take someone out in public and then kill them after. That's not the Ripper style. Trust me, I know my serial killers. And this one is still out there. I think the music is to help us know that it's yeah. a tense moment. <laughs> it's a tense moment there. That is based on a true story. I was discussing it with you as we were listening to yeah. that clip. As to whether it is or is not based on a true story, you reckon not, in no. fact, Chris? I, th I think various um, American trade publications, they reported that when it was being developed by Craig Rosenberg, who works in The Boys, and Jason Bateman, that it was a case based on a true story. But if you watch the first episode, you realise this did not happen. This is... Uh, if it did happen, we would have heard a lot about it. Um, I, what, but, I, I, what I will say is someone who, to my shame, consumes a lot of similar content, there are definite nods to phenomenon. Yes. Yeah. In yeah. the true crime genre. And I think for people who are, dare I say it, fans of that type of stuff, you will, I mean, there's a lot of in-jokes and a lot yeah. of hat tips yeah. and so on. I, I, go ahead then, Chris, what are you saying? about? I, I, I also think, you know, but basically talking about that opening episode, it starts off as a whodunit, but it actually tells you, and I'm not going to say anything because it is a tricky one to talk about as spoiling, mm. but it tells you who done it uh, yeah. in uh, before the end of the first episode. The idea is that Ava figures out who the West Side Ripper is before the cops do. And they have this idea to go to the killer and to record, essentially, Sean, a real-time true crime podcast. And they'll do it anonymously. And I don't know how they're going to do this, but they will, you know, they'll solve their money problems by selling this to advertisers. I don't know how that they're going to do that. The first thing that some listeners might think of is, doesn't that sound an awful lot like Only Murders in the Building? It does sound a little like Only Murders in the Building. And unfortunately, you are going to draw unfavorable comparisons to it mm. because Only Murders, Only Murders works as a satire and as a comedy mystery in its own right. This one doesn't, there's too many ideas going on here. But the one thing that does save it, I should say, is that uh, Chris and Kelly are very good together. Oh, yeah. And as I was listening to that clip there, um, Mary, uh, I did get a sense of, I don't know how much they're taking themselves totally seriously. Is there a comic tone in the background here as well? It, the, the comic tone, Sean, is what's holding it all together because it is right. ludicrous. I mean, if you overthink it, you, the, the whole thing just falls apart. So you really do need leads who are likeable. But you also, and I will say this as well, you need a villain who's likeable. And I have to say, Tom Bateman, I've seen him in Murder on the Orient Express. I've seen him on mm. Death on the Nile. Um, I won't say what he does or, what, or anything like that. As an actor, he kind of passed me by. In this... He takes the role he's been given and he runs with it and he knocks it out of the park. And you really need, when the material is this absurd, you really need performers who can take it to the next level. And the cast really does. All right. Uh, Based on a True Story is available or will be available on Sky Max and Now TV. And it will be available from December the 29th. So I suppose in that in-betweeny type of period, really. Um, quick mention also, Chris, to Agatha Christie. Murder is easy. Yes. According to this, it's a double ep two episodes, is it? Divided over two nights, December 27th and 28th. Yeah, it's a new adaptation of the 1939 novel. It has uh, David Johnson, who was just wonderful in Rye Lane this year. He is playing uh, Fitzwilliam, a retired police officer who meets a woman named Miss Pinkerton on a train, played by the great Penelope Wilton. And she starts telling her about these uh, uh, a series of deaths 
that are happening in her town and everyone thinks, you know, all these people dying, it must be just one accident after the after another. She deduces that, you know, no, they're all connected. There's a serial killer on the loose and she, you know, somehow convinces Fitzwilliam to get involved. Uh, wonderful cast in there. Morphe Clark, uh, last seen in Lord of the Rings, brilliant uh, actor, Tom Riley, Mark Bonner. Um, it's, it, I'd say expectations are high for this one because we've just been discussing a whodunit. Yeah. There are lots mm. of them on the box and on the big screen at the minute. So, so this one is going to have to bring something really, even though it's, you know, one of the original ones to have a new adaptation yeah. of it, it's going to have to bring something special yeah, to the it's table. 27th and 28th of December though, yeah. so you kind of you can say no I will slot. I will be able to watch those yes. two because I'm not doing anything else I'm not going outside at all um, <laughs> oh did I tell too much of what I do over Christmas then perhaps <laughs> um, Mary um, you have a binge as if we would, there won't be enough binging between food and everything else you have mm-hmm. a, binge, a binge watch for us what are you suggesting we binge watch I, if you haven't already, I'm suggesting that you get yourself to Apple TV and watch Slow Horses, Sean. It's regularly referred to as one of the best things on television at the moment. I'm inclined to agree. Gary Oldman has just been nominated for a Golden Globe for his performance as Jackson Lamb. And Jackson Lamb heads up um, the Slow Horses. The Slow Horses being mm. um, re- spies that have been rejected from MI5 who are now banished to a place called Slough House and get all the worst jobs going. But of course, they're very, very good at what they do. And often the reason they been banished for MI5 is, is more complicated than it seems and they're busily defending England from all kinds of um, dangerous yeah. agents shall we say it's a great great show yeah. Jackson Lamb is the anti-James Bond he's a hell of a spy but he's a walking biohazard and it's just a stellar <laughs> performance from Oldman it's great storytelling and I think yeah. if you're going to binge on anything that would be my recommendation yeah, Slow Chris, Horses Chris you were talking to us about very season, fond of it. season 2 a while back wasn't it season, season, season 3 season actually, 3, actually, season three, yeah, season three. Yeah. Um, so you you would suggest binge all three yeah as some people have already noted it's the best show on television that nobody is watching mm-hmm. uh, hopefully oh. hopefully hopefully audiences well, rectify that there you Christmas. go Mary McGill and Chris Wasser telling you yeah. to change that over the Christmas period and Chris we're yes. finishing we're finishing with you you're bringing us back a real trip down memory lane and a real trip of nostalgia that you're suggesting for us yeah the Father Ted Christmas special <laughs> at 5 past 8 on Christmas Eve and RT2 the reason why is because after all these years and after watching it 20 odd times I still think it's the best seasonal special that any sitcom has ever produced and the reason why I say that is because it has the ability at least in my house and I know maybe in houses across the country to completely silence the room you know what's coming you know the jokes you can mouth along the jokes but that's part of the appeal I think everyone yeah. involved stumbled upon something special there and it's an annual Christmas telly tradition that I'll never talk okay. about okay <laughs> and I've, I don't know how many times I've listened to this clip today I'm quite happy to listen to it once more now Wait a second. We've been here. I remember these brass from the first time round. Oh, they all look the same to me. No, no. These ones have double padding and the black lace outline, along with the little cotton supports and the extra strength straps. If we pass by a bra with a middle arch support and single padding and the white lace outline, then I think we're on the right track. Someone's coming. Ted, really? God, are we glad to see you. What happened to you? We were looking for the toilets and we wandered in here by mistake. Get out! It's huge! It's Ireland's biggest laundry section, I understand. Like, this is the situation. We have eight priests hanging around the laundry section. With one or two of us, that'll be embarrassing. But eight, we're talking national scandal. What are we going to do? All the aisles look the same. Right, first thing, don't panic. We're in this thing, let's try and get out of it. Okay? Billy, I want you on point. Father Clearly, Father Deegan, you take up the back. Let's go. And keep it quiet! Uh, it gets better every time you hear it. Is that based on a true story, Chris? Uh, no comment. Ardell <laughs> <laughs> uh, O'Hanlon as Dougal, Dermot Morgan as Ted, Joe Taylor as Father Cleary, Neil McCall as Father Terry, Kevin McDade as Father Deegan. Christmas Eve, to a five, five past eight. Uh, <laughs> and you'll need, you'll need your handkerchief, your tissues for all the you wrong will. reasons because you'd be crying with the laughing. Mary mm-hmm. and Chris, uh, very happy Christmas to you both. Thanks and so you. much for your you suggestions. Too, A ghost story for Christmas, lot number 249, BBC Two, Christmas Eve, Peter and the Wolf. RTE 1, Christmas Day at 5 to 1. Based on a true story, Sky Max and Now TV from December the 29th. Agatha Christie's Murder is Easy, BBC One on both December 27th and 28th. Chris's personal TV gem, uh, the Father Ted Christmas special on RTE 2 television from five at 5 past 8 on Christmas Eve. And Mary's Christmas binge watch recommendation, Slow Horses, available on Apple TV.
And so to Epic, the Irish Emigration Museum in Dublin and The Pogues, They Gave the Walls a Talking is a new exhibition telling the story of that extraordinary band and, of course, of the late, great Shane McGowan. Developed in collaboration with Hot Press magazine, the show brings together all kinds of interviews, photograph and video footage from the archives and from the likes of Nick Cave and Glenn Hansard, as well as the band themselves and the McGowan family. Nathan Mannion is the head of exhibitions and programmes at Epic and he joins me now. I I suppose, Nathan, if there is a place to tell the story of the Pogues, the London Irish band, then Epic, the Irish Emigration Museum, is the place for it. Yes, John, thank you very much. Uh, I think we could only agree uh, the story of the Pogues really does lie at the heart of what we try to do at the Irish Immigration Museum. And that's really share the, that rich history of migration from, from this island over the last 1,500 years all the way up to the present. So we're looking at how people have chose to leave the island in that time. And we're looking at the impact they've had in a range of different fields from music to science innovation, creating and designing, sports and more. So we really think that mm. an exhibition like this one really couldn't be anywhere else. And it, it focuses, does it, Nathan, uh, specifically on this wave of emigration in and around the 1980s, a lot of it to, to Britain, some of it to the United States of America as well and Australia, but Britain really one of the, the major recipients of Irish emigrants at that time. That's the focus, that period. So we, we chart the, the evolution of the band, some of their early influences. We also look at the impact that they had on the punk rock scene in London in the 1980s, but also what impact that scene had on them, how it informed their tradition, how it involved their musical style and how they in turn responded to it. So we're, we are looking at that uh, in detail. It, it's not exclusive, though. We're also looking at some more contemporary influences and the impact that the band have had since they started back in 1982. Let's have a listen to the band in action and to a song that will explain to us where the exhibition gets its title. This is A Pair of Brown Eyes. Talking, and I heard the 
added uh, a pair of brown eyes and uh, just in the verse before that chorus we heard the phrase so I gave the walls a talking and they gave the walls a talking is the title of the exhibition that we're speaking about this evening uh, with Nathan Mannion of Epic, the Irish Emigration Museum. And I suppose in, in some ways, maybe explain why you chose that particular lyric for the exhibition title, uh, Nathan. Yeah, Sean, thank you. Um, well, again, of course, it alludes to the song itself, but mm. we, we felt it, it encapsulated a lot of the Pogue's own experience as well. So uh, Shane McGowan himself often said that, you know, you know your song was a success when people were standing up in bars and starting to sing it, that it was part of a tradition. And I think they encapsulate quite a lot of that almost confrontational style of music that had its genesis in punk rock. Um, almost that you, you'd listen regardless, even if you didn't want to at times. Um, and the idea of giving the walls a talking to that, you know, that they had a message, that they had a story to sell and something to say. And it might not always be something that you'd be comfortable with, but it mm. was, you know, an expression of something that needed to be heard. I Is, think what they did really well. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, yeah, I was, I'm probably you were heading towards the direction of the question I'm going to ask anyway. Is there something that the Pogues did with what we might refer to as an emigrant song that was very particular to them? Yes, I think so. I feel that the Pogues in particular, they're, they're a unique London Irish phenomenon. I don't think they could have ever really occurred anywhere else at that time. And I think what they did best is capture that sense almost of disenfranchisement that many members of the Irish community felt at that time and give them something to rally around. You know, the music scene was quite charged. If you remember the 1980s in Britain as well, we were still going through the troubles. There was still an element of suspicion if you were walking around with an Irish accent. It wasn't something that celebrated the way we would see it today around the world among the diaspora. So having that sense of community and that sense of a, of, of a powerful voice mm. responding, you know, to institutions of power to a sense of you know falling through the cracks people who maybe weren't making it or didn't feel like they were part of society in Ireland or in Britain you know they almost fell between two stools in some way that they're at home they're they were being ignored for you know having left while in in Britain they were never fully you know assimilated into yeah. society so trying to find that identity when you might fly back to Ireland for Christmas or go back on the ferry and then return back to London. You know, you could be living hand to mouth in some ways and I think the band gave almost a voice to that community. Uh, the exhibition opened just last week. I mean, obviously this wasn't something that you threw together in the, in the, in the, in the last couple of weeks. It had been in planning for, for some time but obviously the, the, the death of, the recent death of Shane McGowan uh, has that added in some ways or has did it change some of the aspects of the exhibition, do you think? So we've been working on this exhibition since early April, um, very closely with Hot Press Magazine and with some members of the band and their family families. So, of course, we were due to open the day that Shane McGowan suddenly passed away, so it did delay the opening slightly. But to be honest, I think it's probably made the exhibition more timely than ever. We were hoping to have it as a centrepiece of our winter programme where we're celebrating all things Irish music. I think having seen the outpouring of, you know, fun memories and, and warm messages from people all over the world in the wake of McGowan's death, it really has shown what an impact they and their music have had on the world. And I think we've gone from what would have been just a, a beautiful exhibition, you know, celebrating a Christmas classic like Fairytale mm. in New York and the impact of the band to almost a tribute um, to, to Shane and his work. We, we, we had hoped he'd be here in person to open the exhibition for us, but sadly that isn't going to be the case. But who knows, we may be able to to do our little bit to help get a, a Christmas number one for what would have been his 66th birthday. So yeah. we'll, we'll have our fingers crossed yeah, for that I, one. And, and I said that the exhibition um, takes its title from that line from uh, A Pair of Brown Eyes, but uh, you've you've also taken a line from The Fairy Tale of New York um, and, and you've done something that is suggested in that line, something that never happened, I, I believe, but that now will happen regarding the NYPD. That's right. So one of the other kind of anchors of our winter programme is that famous line from Fairytale of New York, the boys of the NYPD choir were singing Galway Bay. 
famously, of course, that never took place. But we felt it was it was time we did it justice. You know, it's a long time since 1987. So we went and we assembled a, a choir of retired Irish-American NYPD officers in New York. And we put a choir together and had them sing Galway Bay for the very first time. And that choir, uh, we, we made a beautiful music video, which you can view on our website or, or on YouTube. And you can also see in the museum itself uh, up until New Year's Day, if you if you come along to see both the Pogues exhibition and that video. So we were very happy to, to finally make that a reality. And mm. um, Shane had been aware of it as well while that, it, it was released a little earlier than the exhibition. So... We, we received fond messages from his um, his wife, Victoria yeah. Mary Clark, on that too. And the band themselves did share it for us. So we're very pleased. Yeah, well, it's, it is, it's great that this exhibition is happening at this time. And I think it'll be a way for people to, to continue with, um, uh, I suppose, their mourning of the passing of Shane McGowan uh, and, and to have this set of memorabilia and stuff that you have uh, at the exhibition, I think will be very useful in that respect. We'll finish up with uh, another Pogue song. Sally McLennan is the, is the one we're going to listen to. This is a bit more on the punky side of things. I think it's, it's fair to say, Nathan. Oh, absolutely. Looking forward to hearing it. All right. Well, listen, I'll give people out, I'll give people the full details of the exhibition, but let's have a listen to a little bit of Sally McLennan. Well, Jimmy Blight, I'm on again, the pub where I was born. He played it from the night time to the pace of early morn. He sold the souls of psychos and the men who had the horn. And they all looked very happy in the morning. But Jimmy didn't like his place in this world of ours. Where the other man brought storm and decks and he had too many pairs. So I sad to see the grieving of the people that I'm leaving. And he took the road for God knows in the morning. We walked him to the station in the rain. We kissed him as we put him on the train. And we sang him a song that time's long gone. Now we knew that we'd be seeing him again. There you go. <laughs> the Pogues at their punky best. Sally McLennan, the title of that song. And the exhibition we've been speaking about, The Pogues, They Gave the Walls a Talking, is at EPIC, the Irish Emigration Museum in Dublin, through until the 31st of January 2024. EpicCHQ.com will give you all of the details there. And staying with The Pogues, six years ago, our colleague Paula Shields made a TV documentary about Fairy Tale of New York featuring Shane McGon, Courtier Ireland, Spider uh, Stacey and Paul Simon, Bob Geldof, Christy Moore and many others. That documentary, Fairy Tale of New York, Story of a Christmas Classic, goes out tonight on RTE One Television at a quarter past ten. Yes, Christmas is still very much in the future. Perhaps it's a little early to turn to thoughts of self-improvement. Of, and of course, on Arena, we're certainly not going to lecture, lecture you on the latest trends in intermittent fasting. We care not for such trifles. I kid you not. <laughs> there you go. But what if your January resolutions are of a more artistic hue? Art historian Jess Fahey joins me now with a rundown of the courses that will kick off at the National Gallery of Ireland in 2024. And an important thing to, to point out before we start and into any of the details of the specific courses, Jess, is you don't have to go to the National Gallery every week or whatever. A lot of these things are available online and in person. Yeah, absolutely. So you can tune in from anywhere in the world. Over the past few years, we've had people literally from all over the world. Mm. And even if you can't make it at the time, it's recorded and you get two weeks to watch the playback, which I know people like to do as well, because then they can pause on an image and spend more time looking at it than maybe they had in the moment live. Uh, So, yeah, I think it means that ultimately this kind of brings art history to you no matter Mm. where you are. All right. Um, we're going to. We've tweeted uh, some images on at RTE Arena, and we we may refer to some of those as we're going along. But they're all up there at the moment. Your own course, first of all, you're delivering this one, Jess. Art and uh, art, the Irish in the age of decadence. Please give me the definition <laughs> of decadence from 1893. Yes. So ultimately, decadence is considered to be a kind of interesting and beautiful disease. <laughs> So it's a a little bit of uh, positive and negatives all in one, um, because at this particular moment, it's understood as a decline where ultimately morals are out the window, Mm. definitely not doing any fasting or things like that. It's all about overindulgence.
indulgence as much as possible. And it's sort of related to the fall of the Roman Empire and those kind of ideas. But if we look at it from an artistic production point of view, this is one of the most productive periods of art. So from roughly 1870 up to the First World War. First World War. And because of that, then we sort of have a different view of what decadence means uh, in comparison to what they might have thought at the yeah. time. So, uh, I mean, some of the images that you have here, you've you've got Dega, for example, and, and yeah. the two ballet dancers at the class. Yeah. So this is a fascinating one because of the Irish context, uh, context, um, context. So ultimately, it was purchased by Edward Martin, who's then living down in Galway in Tallira Castle. He has it hung up in the house, but his mother thinks it's too scandalous for anyone else to see, so he has to hide it ultimately. Mm. And the reason for that is, at the time, the association of ballet dancers as being, as they were called, the little rats usually. So there was this assumption that they were, you know, this sort of lower class type of person Mm. associated with sex work, all of these things. So something that we look at today is this beautiful painting at the time was a symbol of this decadence, of this lack of moral, lack of control, this indulgence and things that you shouldn't be doing. And Toulouse-Lautrec is going to feature in here as well. Yep. If you want to find the heart of decadence, (laughs) go to the Moulin Rouge. Uh, So ultimately, the Moulin Rouge opens in 1889. uh, And then the decade that follows is often known as the naughty 90s, where everything was permissive and everything was allowed. Toulouse-Lautrec, although himself born as aristocrat, ends up living in the Montmartre area, where he spends a lot of time in brothels and spending time with uh, the cabaret performers. Mm. The poster, the most famous one that we have uh, showing on at um, online at the moment uh, is a good example of him picking out some of these famous characters. So one is Le Goule, who was uh, known as the Glutton. So her uh, nickname comes from as she was dancing in the Moulin Rouge, she'd go around stealing drinks off other yeah. people. And apparently she also used to shout out every time the Prince of Wales was there saying, Kingy, will you buy me my next champagne? So it's, you know, the yeah. aristocrats going to these lower All class right. pa- places to do whatever they All want. All right. So that's that's your own um, your own uh, of course, uh, Art and the Irish in the Age of Decadence and it will be available on Tuesdays, six o'clock to a quarter past seven. But as you say, if you can't make that, you can always watch it back exactly. subsequently if you can't make the, the specific moment when it's been done online. Um, spring of 2024, European Masters of the Baroque, Dr Audrey Nichols is delivering this. Yes. So one of the things that's sort of fascinating about the courses in the National Gallery every year is that they bring in different people with different areas of interest and expertise. And Dr. Nichols is an expert on the uh, Brock period. So if we think about the Brock, we're really thinking about quite a large period but from the 17th into the mm. 18th century. As a style, we mean anything over dramatic. As a term to define an era, it can actually be quite varied. So you don't necessarily just have very over the top things. So, for example, it includes Caravaggio, Rembrandt, mm. Vermeer, yeah. Rubens. So a lot of very different artists. I'm wondering, too, in, in terms of people who might be thinking uh, of taking a course like this, how much knowledge are you expected to, to have? Can you come to this as an absolute beginner? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So because we always have to start with the beginnings and the definitions mm. and we go into those details. And then as the course progresses, it tends to follow the main interests of your lecturer and you'll get more in depth in certain areas with different people than you would otherwise. We also all have guest speakers as well. So for things that are a little bit more in depth, we'll bring somebody else in. So it's actually caters for a wide range of people and uh, knowledge. All of the courses, in fact, are on the Tuesday evening from 6 to 7.15. It's just there are different starting dates, but the the National Gallery website will give you the details Mm -hmm. on that. So yours is winter of 2024. Spring of 2024 is the Masters of the Baroque. A Life Less Ordinary, Evolution of the Everyday. Sarah Wilson, Dr. Sarah Wilson will be giving this course. So this is much more thematic than based on an era like myself or uh, Mm. um, Audrey's. And in this case, it's sort of taking up the genre scene and the genre scene can be any scene of everyday life. It kind of becomes a separate subject in the 17th century. And that's particularly after the Reformation. People like John Calvin saying that you shouldn't paint anything that you can't see. So anything that's considered a fantasy is not allowed. It's incorrect. And that's particularly true of religious art for uh, Protestants Mm. versus Catholics who are much more into the Brock side of things where they want all the drama and fantasy. Uh, In relation then to thinking about these types of subjects, they can be vastly different in terms of how we might read them or interpret them. 
them. In particular, still life subjects, say, from um, 17th century Dutch Republic, where it's all about these beautiful objects. And when we first look at it, it looks like a celebration of abundance of all these beautiful things. But the Dutch tended to like to have a moral or a message behind it. So very quickly, as you look at it, you'll start to see there's a skull. There might be a fly. Something's actually rotting. All the fruits are open at the same time. You know, so it starts to tell you that you need to actually worry rather than want to absorb and take in. Yeah. So even though we're talking about the everyday, Mm. what what, uh, Dr. uh, What Sarah Wilson will be looking at particularly is the kind of the hidden bits of the everyday that are in a lots of these paintings of of the various periods. Again, that one is autumn of 2024. Um, are, are all the courses are of the same cost? Yes, they are. Yeah. So uh, each of them uh, is 150 uh, per course. And then I think there is a discount if people buy all three t- yeah, they're, yeah, they're together discounts the for unwaged and yeah. uh, uh, students and teachers as well, and friends of the gallery, um, and National Gallery, uh, uh, and, and National Gallery of Ireland. Ie will get you the full exactly. details. And I just want to go back briefly to your own course because mm. another image I wanted to ask you about. I wasn't sure if I'd get time to go to it. Um, this is the James McNeil Whistler Symphony uh, in White, mm. Number One, the White Girl. Mm. Now I'm wondering. Where's the decadence in that? It looks like a totally and absolutely innocent picture. Well, there you go. So one of the things that we do find looking back in this era is that things that look completely fine to us, Mm. not so fine then. So the Irish connection is that it's Joe Heffernan. She's the model and she lived with Whistler as his wife, not his wife. So in other words, she wore a wedding ring, but they were definitely not married. Um, And when people looked at a painting like that, they were absolutely shocked because that sort of size or scale was usually reserved to somebody who are of an aristocratic background Mm. or someone like a religious figure to show just this regular woman. And then on top of that, not to even give her name. So it's not a portrait. Originally, it was just called The Woman in White, which uh, Whistler claimed had nothing to do with the Wilkie Collins uh, novel. Later, it's then given uh, the title Symphony in White. So he's referring to how ultimately in the same way in music you can just have notation that will give you feeling in art you should be able to just have form uh, and tone essentially yeah and I, there was I thinking it's because she's standing on a poor polar bear controversy about that too I thought that might have been part of the decadence that we were talking about uh, it is a polar bear the, the skin of a polar bear yeah. that she's standing on fascinating stuff indeed thanks so much for coming into us and, and telling John. us about those courses for next year that's uh, Jess Fahey and that is our lot for this Tuesday evening uh, Leah Murphy researched the programme Mary Elizabeth Bruton was the broadcast coordinator Ashley Grufferty was on sound and tonight's programme was produced by Sinead Egan I will talk to you tomorrow night once again 7 o'clock here on RTE Radio 1 and John Creedon will be with you after the news which is with us now at 8 o'clock